Welcome to the Hannah Miller Show. And here she is, Hannah Miller. Outspokenly conservative and unashamedly Christian, this is Hannah Miller, and this is what happened this week. So we're going to cover a couple of stories this week. First of all, I want to talk about some things coming to the show. Second, I want to talk about an interview, a breaking news episode that happened for this podcast earlier this week. Third, I want to talk about an interesting shift that's happening in American politics, and then we'll close out the show talking about Tulsi Gabbard leaving the Democrat Party. So let's jump right in, and first of all, talk about what's going on, maybe some changes that might be coming our way with the show, with the Hannah Miller Show. So my producer and I have been brainstorming recently, and we would like to add a segment Uh, to this podcast, kind of an ask me anything kind of segment. And it may be something we tag on to the end of the weekly podcast or possibly something that I produce in addition to the weekly podcast. We're not entirely sure yet how it's going to look, but it would be literally the sky is the limit in regards to questions. If you want to ask about a topic I've covered before and you want to know if I've changed my mind or if if you want updated information because I haven't covered it in a while ask me. I'd love to let you know. Maybe you want to know what it was like growing up in a family of nine kids, or maybe you want to know my salvation story, or about being homeschooled, or me being a homeschool mom. Any of those things. Maybe you have a difficult horse and you want want to know my thoughts, or maybe you know my background is biblical counseling and you want to ask a question regarding a difficult decision that you need to make. Literally, you can ask me anything. Uh, Politics, personal life, uh, religious, Christian-related based, it doesn't really matter. Uh, We would love to get those questions in and maybe start going through them. So if that's something that you are interested in, if you're like, you know what? Actually, I would be interested in having that kind of a segment on the show. Let us know. Give us a little bit of feedback on that. Um, The best way to do that is to contact my producer, Bob Sloan, at Bob at bobsloan.com. So that's B-O-B at B-O-B-S-L-O-N-E dot com. And you can let us know if that's something you're interested in or not, and feel free to submit your first question. Uh, You can also reach out to me via Facebook or Instagram. I'm on both of those. If you see me in real life, you can let me know in real life as well if that's something that you're interested in. All right, so moving on to the, the first news story of the week. If you missed it, I did a special breaking news episode this week. It was an interview with uh, my dad, Dr. Robert Jackson, regarding discrimination that he and other employees of Spartanburg Regional Hospital System are facing. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that interview, but I will offer a little bit of a brief recap here as well, because I want this information to go as far as it possibly can. Essentially, an international accrediting agency called Det Norvosk Veritas, DNV, is requiring Spartanburg Regional Hospital System and Self Memorial in Greer to compel their employees who obtained a medical or religious exemption from the COVID vaccine to self-test for COVID before they can receive their paycheck each pay period. So every two weeks, these guys have to self-test at home for COVID. No other hospitals in South Carolina are making these requirements. And furthermore, even our own CDC doesn't require these mandates. And then the last thing that we cover, what does this accomplish for the hospitals? As Dad and I discussed, this provides absolutely no protection since the vaccines do not prevent COVID nor stop transmission. So 
why this discrimination against the unvaccinated when both the vaxxed and the unvaxxed alike can catch it and spread it? Of course, it ultimately comes down to money for Spartanburg Regional Hospital System and Self Memorial. And we go into the details in the interview. So if you'd like to know some more of the details on that, you can go back and listen if you want all the information. Next news story. An interesting shift is happening in American politics. First of all, the number of Latino voters in the United States has been rapidly increasing. In 2020, for the first time, Latino voters became the second largest voting group in the national election with 16.6 million votes. And an additional 1 million Latinos become eligible to vote each year. And it doesn't stop there. Although voting among Latinos rose by 30% in 2020, as compared to the previous national election, 50% of the community still didn't cast their ballot. Still, Latinos have a clear voting power, with numbers significant enough to swing elections in their favor. So, with that knowledge, one of the interesting things I noted after the 2020 election was the Latino voter shift towards the Republican Party that happened. The majority of Latinos have historically supported the Democrat Party since at least the 1980s, believing and, and, and their belief is that the Democrat Party was more in tune with the needs of the Latino community. But the Democrats in recent years have shown very clearly that they see the Latino community as single-issue voters. And that would be immigration. They see Latinos as voters who only care about immigration. According to a recent poll by Unidos U.S. and Mi Familia, the Latino community is quite diverse, and the immigration issue doesn't even make the top 10 issues for Latinos. According to the poll, the top five issues for Latinos are, are quite wide-ranging, including inflation, rising cost of living, crime, gun violence, jobs in the economy, health care, and abortion. So, and let me break it out without going into all of the details, but the pertinent things that you need to know. While Latinos do believe Democrats can best address crime and gun violence, health care, and abortion, they also believe Republicans can best address their top concern, inflation, the cost of living, and their third highest concern, the economy. So, Actually, the entire poll, and I, I missed said that earlier, the entire poll is interesting and you may be interested in it, but per our conversation, this is the, these are the things that are relevant to our conversation that I'm having now. So you did have kind of a, a breakdown here where they do think, you know, according to the, with the top five issues, Latinos think that Democrats can best address the crime and gun violence, the health care and, and abortion, and then they believe Republicans can best address like I said, their top concern, which is inflation, cost of living, and their third highest concern, the economy. Furthermore, in the same poll, 60% of Latinos believe we are on the wrong track as a country. Now, I know we hear that, and because the Democrats are in charge, we automatically assume that they blame the Democrats for that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they believe Republicans have the answer. It just means that they're dissatisfied and looking to change things, okay? Many Democrats had hoped that what happened in 2020 would be a one-time fluke, but it appears that that may not be the case. 
The Latino vote could become a legitimate swing vote, and both parties better get their court and shoes on because they have a large demographic to woo. And there are signs that the Republicans have been making serious inroads with the Latino communities, doing a really good job of communicating how they can meet the needs of the Latino community. Whereas the Democrats have, for the most part, completely ignored them and kind of seen them as a monolithic community or or voter block, I guess. So it's just interesting to see how that's going to kind of pan out. And uh, so just watch that. And I will try to continue to watch it as well to keep you guys updated on how that on how that goes. And I'll be interested to see how it looks here in the midterms that are coming up. Hey, this is Bob, the producer of this podcast. Just want to take a quick minute to let you know you can always get your questions into us. Ask us anything. Feel free to email me at bob at bobsloan.com, B-O-B at B-O-B-S-L-O-N-E dot com. Or you can always find that information and more in the show notes. Now back to Hannah. Oh, yeah, I forgot that I was going to talk about this. So first, what I'm about to say is not to, quote, infight, end quote, as so many of the GOP establishment like to accuse whenever a conservative criticizes another supposed conservative. I am going to say what I'm about to say because I want us to do better in the future. And it's a perfect local example of what I'm talking about. And that's the superintendent race that's coming up. If Ellis loses in November, it will not be because of the strength of Ellen Weaver's candidacy. It will be because Ellis has a D by her name and she is in bed with so many of the extreme ideologies of the progressive left. This will yet again be a race where a candidate won because of how bad the other candidate was, not because of the strength of their own candidacy. Second, as of yet, Weaver has made no announcement that she has fulfilled the legal requirement of having a master's. Now, you and I know that she doesn't have to have that paper until January when she actually takes office. So she has an additional two months after Election Day. But most voters don't know that. And even if they do know it, it's quite demotivating to the voters when your candidate isn't even legally qualified on Election Day. And Election Day is all about motivation. It's all about energy. Who has the energy behind their party to get the most voters out? All right. And I just, I hate to say it, but that that is just the way it is. And third, when picking a candidate to run for office, know your voters. And this really is a part of that second point. Okay. You have to know your voters. This is politics 101. And apparently the entire GOP establishment forgot it when it came to backing a Republican candidate for superintendent of education because we had other candidates. We had specifically one other candidate, Kizzy Gibson, that was a good, strong candidate as far as her platform is concerned. Okay? And they either just completely forgot this, which I don't believe they did, or they knew but didn't care because they wanted Ellen Weaver for their own reasons, which is more likely what it was. They wanted Ellen Weaver. She's she's from the inside. She's not an outsider when it comes to politics. She's been hobnobbing with a lot of these guys for a long time. All right. 
Anyway, I say all of this, though, because the number one demographic necessary to win in the superintendent of education race is parents, closely followed by teachers. And who do you think many parents ask when seeking information on which candidate to vote for in the superintendent of education race? You guessed it, their kid's teacher. And let me just be honest. There is not a snowball's chance in hell that South Carolina teachers will enthusiastically support someone who hasn't ever stepped foot in a classroom. Sorry, it's not going to happen. It's just, it's the way it is. That is the nature of that race. Now, that's not to say that Ellis is for sure going to win. Again, despite her years of experience in the classroom, she's a terrible candidate. Because most parents and most South Carolina teachers aren't in agreement regarding the LGBTQ agenda, which Ellis is in full support of. And the energy, just to be quite frank, is simply behind the Republican Party. But my point is this. Weaver's uninspiring candidacy won't exactly turn them out in droves either. It'll just be because of how passionately voters disagree with the Democrat platform. All that to say, I think we actually will see Weaver win, but it's only because she has an R by her name, and those with a D have been appropriately labeled as in bed with gender insanity. So those with a with a D by name, their name, they they've been they just don't have the energy behind them, and they've been appropriately labeled, at least here in South Carolina, as being uh, in alignment with the LGBTQ kind of craziness and agenda. There's in South Carolina, there's been, and really on the national level, there's been a really concerted effort to expose those who are in the classrooms that are in alignment with that. And there's a lot of parents across the nation who are up in arms about it and good for them. But anyway, my point is this, Republican candidates will win this November because their opposition is terrible, rather than on the strengths of their own candidacy. And again and again, this is how we end up with Republicans who aren't full on progressives, but they are conservative failures according to the voting record. I want to see conservatives win because they're a strong candidate that people enthusiastically support. Remember, the Democrat Party is driving toward Marxism at 200 miles per hour, but the GOP is going the same direction, just at a more sedate pace of 95 miles per hour. You get what I'm saying? The GOP and the Democrats in 2022 are two sides of the same coin, which means... And this is my overall point with all of this, that the Latinas, Latinos that are abandoning the Democrat Party are quickly going to become dissatisfied with the Republican Party as well. Which brings me to my final topic, Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi wrote a compelling letter this week on why she is leaving the Democrat Party. Her arguments were factual and right on the money. I won't go into all her arguments. I encourage you to read it because it's simply good information and relatively concise considering the number of topics that she covers. She points out the Democrats' rejection of the rule of law, of free speech, of freedom of religion, and of the right to bear arms. She uh, also accuses them of racializing everything and fomenting anti-white racism and of undermining our civil civil liberties, women, and families. She provided examples of all the points she made. So it's actually an 
excellent summation of the Democrat Party as it is today. So I would encourage you to go read it. It's actually a pretty fast read, uh, but, you know, she goes through all of those points and then defends them uh, with about three, maybe four sentences each. So I don't know, you know, I don't consider it a lengthy read, but I know some people uh, maybe would, but it probably is less than a 10-minute read. But this is what I want to talk about. Is Tulsi Gabbard someone dissatisfied Republicans, Democrats, and independents should consider supporting? Because I'm already seeing people say this. They, you need to te- team up with DeSantis or you need to run as an independent. You need to, you know, do all. And basically at the end of her letter, she was compelling uh, people to follow her to whatever, wherever she goes, you know, whether it be as an independent or, uh, which is, I think what she's going to, where she's going to land as an independent. She's certainly not going to be joining the Republican party. She's going to be an independent, but wherever she kind of ends up running or how that ends up looking, she asked people to support her and join her in that. So should you consider it? Should you consider supporting, I mean, if you had a DeSantis, I mean, I don't think that you would get a DeSantis Tulsi ticket, but should you want a Tulsi and DeSantis ticket? Should you want Tulsi to be somebody that you support? Well, you know, the number one thing I want to consider when it comes to politics is whether or not someone follows the Constitution. Unfortunately, Tulsi's constitutional voting record is 29%. So it's pretty clear that while she doesn't agree with the insanity of the Democrat Party, she also doesn't actually support our Constitution either. Look, if you're sitting there and you can't stand Lindsey Graham, he has a better constitutional voting record than she does. And I know a lot of libertarians claim to be, you know, they they decide to go the route of libertarianism because they believe it's more in line with the Constitution. And they can't stand Lindsey Graham. But a lot of them are supporting Tulsi Gabbard. Why? Why? Look, her. here's some examples. Some of her recent votes. She voted in favor of H.R. 4447 in September of 2020. It's a radical environmental bill that increases federal government meddling in the energy market. It infringes on U.S. sovereignty, and it violates the Constitutional Interstate Commerce Clause. She voted in favor of statehood for Washington, D.C., in favor of the Equality Act, and in favor of H.R. 8 which would mandate universal background checks, essentially ban all private firearm sales, and create a federal registry of all gun owners in the United States. So, just on that last vote alone, she proves she doesn't actually support the Second Amendment either. And, by default, our Constitution. As much as she accused the Democrat Party of disregarding the Constitution in her letter, the Equality Act, prevention of private firearm sales, Sales, universal background checks, and a federal registry for gun owners are unconstitutional as well. A lot of folks see Tulsi as a viable third-party option. She's not bombastic. She comes across as a middle-ground candidate, i.e. she's not radically left or radically right. She's young and not Caucasian, which appeals to voters tired of seeing old white people in office. But let me remind you of two things. First, just because someone is not old and not white doesn't mean they follow the Constitution. That's a no-brainer. That is a no-brainer. Two, we need someone who's radical. Don't swallow this garbage that we need a middle-of-the-road candidate. No. 
You want middle ground? That's Mitt Romney. A guy who maybe doesn't hate you, but certainly doesn't fight for you either. And you know where that gets you? A GOP that always loses. Even when we win, we lose. Point in case, Lindsey Graham winning office in 2020. Even when we win, we lose. Middle-of-the-road candidates are nice guys who will tell you everything you want to hear, but are not willing to actually do hard things because hard things make too many people uncomfortable. Isn't that what COVID tyranny has been all about? Stay home. Wear a mask. Get the shot. Because you don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. Even if it's all based on a lie, just do it. Because God forbid anyone experience any level of discomfort. Now our supply chain is crippled, our jobs are on the chopping block, anxiety and depression are at epidemic levels, and more millennials died last year than any other age group, and no one wants to talk about why that could have happened because, boy, we can't make people uncomfortable with their compliance. We have the LGBT radical agenda because a bunch of nice guys said we should look the other way when men practice homosexuality. We have babies being ripped apart and poisoned in the womb because a bunch of nice guys said... Well, what about rape and incest? Well, what about it? Is it not murder in those cases just like it is in the other situations? We don't need a radical Democrat or a radical Republican. We need a radical conservative. Or rather, a radical Americanist. I'm becoming attached to that term. (laughs) Someone who is willing to follow the Constitution to the detriment of all the alphabet agencies in the federal government. A radical Americanist is someone who is willing to thoroughly, top to bottom, and comprehensively, left to right, change the aspects of our federal and state governments that operate in opposition to the U.S. Constitution by doing hard things, by following the Constitution, for the betterment of others instead of self. That's a radical Americanist, by my definition. By today's weak, selfish standards, that's radical. And that's exactly what we need. Thank you for listening to The Hannah Miller Show. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is produced by Bob Sloan Audio Productions. If you'd like to find out more about Hannah or to schedule her for a speaking event, go to her website, thehannamillershow.com. 